view it through the lens of just, that's okay. That You did the best you could with what you had. Now learn from it and, and grow through that and evolve through that as opposed to let that thing define me or define you. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good morning, everyone. David Wright here, and I'm your host of Disruptive Innovators, the Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this morning, I'm joined by Mr. Andy Lehman. How are you, Andy? I'm doing good, David. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. So, Andy, tell us all about your current role, where you are now. So, uh, I'm the CIO at Kettering Health, which is a health network in Dayton, Ohio. We have approximately, well, not approximately, we have nine hospitals. We have Many, many employed physicians with many physician clinics spread around the region. We have freestanding ERs. We have imaging centers. I would say we're not, a, we're not like one of the huge players in terms of, of size of the healthcare network. We're about $2.5 in net revenue. We're sort of a mid-major, if you will. That's sort of how I would characterize it if you want to use that kind of language. But there's plenty there to keep us busy. That's for sure. we got a lot going on. I think as all healthcare networks do, and especially as a CIO in a network, there's a lot happening. Yeah, and Kettering's a name that when I hear it, I, I know about it. So and you know, it's funny you mentioned that the legacy of Charles Kettering, who is our namesake, he was one of the most prolific inventors ever. And in fact, I think in terms of number of patents, he's right behind Thomas Edison. I'm not sure everyone realizes that, but no, I had no idea. When you think about like getting in your car and coming to work, he invented the electric starter which obviously General Motors at the time and in the early 1900s was extremely interested in and bought. Actually, our headquarters are his old home here in Dayton. It's a property referred to as Ridgely Terrace, and it was the first air-conditioned home in the world because he invented air conditioning. So, you know, you start to look at this stuff and you go, wow, this guy had an incredible impact. It's pretty cool to have that legacy of Kettering Health from an innovation standpoint. That is cool. You learn something new every day, man. There you go. In that vein, we like to start out with one piece of actionable advice you'll look to give our listeners today. This isn't so much uh, technology specific, but you know, I've always been a huge believer that the willingness of an individual to develop their leadership capabilities 
and really pursue that and view it as a an area of their life that can be developed as opposed to something you're just sort of naturally gifted with, I think is a, is a really worthwhile endeavor. I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of really smart people over the years, really great technical people. And uh, there's always a need for great technical people. So in no way am I discounting sort of that technical competency. However, I would suggest that for your listeners of your podcast, if they're trying to advance careers, advance candidly roles in their life, like being a better father, being a better husband, being a better, you know, pick your role at work, being a better, pick your community activity, you know, coach, whatever it is. I think when a leader gets better, everybody wins. And I think that's a very powerful thought. The individual wins because they grow in their leadership. Their team wins because they're a better leader. The organization at large wins because now what they're doing is advancing something towards that mission. I'm a big proponent of if you're in the game, don't ever forget about your leadership development, regardless of what your role is. So the one actionable thing out of this, I would say, is uh, is go do that. Go really be intentional about your leadership development. We had somebody on, the episode isn't live yet, so I don't want to give away too much, but who's talking about how at one point his wife had encouraged him to read the, the five love languages and how, yes, it was relevant to the, the personal relationships, but even to employer-employee relationships, right? Or, or boss-employee relationships in that people react differently to different coaching styles. So I think that's relevant to that. And, you know, I think for the, the modern CIO too, the role has really become about I mean, I suppose it's always been this way, right? Or meant to be this way, but really embodying the challenges of the business, the vision of the business, and translating that into what technology can do to fulfill that vision. And then in regard to the staff, kind of touch moving, inspiring that staff to attract the right talent, which now is more important than ever, and keep that talent, which again is huge right now. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, that's for sure. The first thought that kicked that crossed my mind was uh, I really love the idea of, uh, of integrity. And by integrity, I have a tendency to think about that is regardless of the hat I'm wearing, I show up as the same person based on the same values and core identity. So Andy Lehman, CIO, Andy Lehman, father, Andy Lehman, husband, Andy Lehman, board member, Andy Lehman, whatever. I'm operating out of the same value system, if you will, right? And it applies to what you just described in terms of staff as well. So, you know, as CIO, I think the role is very much, I don't want to say in flux. Maybe I just want to say it's a really cool role. But let me just put it that way. It's like, it's really cool. It's, there's a certain amount of strategic interaction, which you have to get into. We have to understand what our stakeholders are trying to accomplish such that we can marry the technology and the solutions into that. And as the CIO, I get to sit in many different forums across Kettering Health to have those strategic discussions, whether it's with our employed physician group, whether it's with hospital presidents, whether it's with the CEO and the most senior leadership of the organization talking about where we want to go because it is. It's all founded on technology, it feels like. Now, obviously, within healthcare, the magic happens between the doctor 
or the caregiver and the patient. So I don't, I don't want to make it sound like that is not the center of the world in which I work. However, within that environment where the patient and the physician come together, we want the technology to add to that magic. People come into our network when they're at the most vulnerable. There are things that happen in an exam room with a physician that if you lifted those out, did them in public or outside of a healthcare environment, it would be criminal. So people have this huge vulnerability within which that they bring through the door. And then there's this trust that happens where they say, I'm going to trust you to do things to me that are really unbelievable. And suddenly the IT has to wrap into that scenario in a way that enables it and makes it better and creates a better experience while at the same time strategically advancing what the organization is trying to do strategically. So as CIO, you sort of think through things through the strategic lens, of course, through the traditional sort of IT lens, which is, okay, we got data centers and all this stuff, but ultimately we want that patient experience or that guest experience to be as great as it can be. So you work through all of that ultimately in the role of the CIO. And as a result, it's not just about hey, we got to make sure that the computers are working today. No, it's not just sort of the traditional IT stuff. It's way more interesting than that, in my opinion. It's a really, really cool role. But back to my comments on leadership, I think when I took the role of CIO, and I think when any leader steps into the role, there's certain expectations. And I'm borrowing liberally here from a book called Mastering Leadership by Adams and Anderson, which I think is one of the best leadership books, maybe the best leadership book I've ever read. But it talks about the four promises of leadership and what the people who you work with expect from you. So one is setting the right direction, creating meaningful work. My teams want me to do that. The second is engage all the stakeholders and hold them accountable for performance. I've got to do that. We got to make sure that people are delivering what they're supposed to deliver. The third is, you know, ensure that processes and systems facilitate focus and execution. So we've got to architect the organization such that it's effective. And then last but not least, it's, you know, I got to lead effectively. I got to maintain relationships of trust to deliver results. So, you know, you do those four things as a leader. And it's amazing, regardless of what your position is, people are going to expect that of you when you step into a leadership role. You know, when I took the job as CIO, I get to do all the strategic stuff, which is great. We have this incredible mission which happens when caregivers take care of patients. Um, but then also there's this element of leadership, which is just people have those expectations of me and I, I need to be intentional about what I'm doing to fulfill those expectations. First off, what you said about integrity, I mean, that really rings true for me. Just as a, a leader, a business owner, an entrepreneur, you know, having that humility and being right-sized, I like how you're, you look to show up to all those situations just as yourself, as who you are at your core, your values. Like, I think that's huge. I love what you said about the patient experience and how, you know, it is about the caregiver, the doctor, physician, the nurse, and the patient. But how can we leverage technology to make the experience leading up to that and after that highly personalized, radically convenient, and really... That's a great I haven't heard that before, radically convenient. That's interesting. And enable those folks just to focus on delivering a com compassionate experience, you know. So 
let's dive into a little bit about your personal backstory. So you're, you're the CIO of Kettering now, but where did you start out and, and how did you get to where you are now? So I was a chemistry major in college at University of Richmond, which I'm not using much of anymore. <laughs> but uh, it was a great experience. I went to work for a company called EDS after college, and this is in the mid-80s or late-80s, I guess. Um, and that was a big IT outsourcing company. Some of your viewers may remember Ross Perot, who ran for president in the early 90s. He made his uh, fortune by starting EDS, which was eventually bought by General Motors. Um, so I went to work there. Did that for, you know, I think it was eight or nine years. Sort of learned the IT game, if you will, there. It was a great experience. And I thought it was a great company. I went to work for a smaller company back in Dayton, Ohio, which actually had very little to do with IT. But it was uh, an interesting step towards me having my own business. I always felt a strong desire to have my own company, which eventually I started uh, with another gentleman. It was a uh, online auction company who built branded auctions. And uh, if you rewind the tape back to you know the late 1990s, eBay was just getting going, and there was a lot of froth around auctions. And uh, we felt like for strong brands, uh, they didn't necessarily need to use eBay to auction off really unique items. They needed to do it themselves. So we hooked up with CM, with Country Music Television and MTV and VH1. And, they had all these experiential things that you could auction off, like I would go to the video music awards, hang out with the stars and all that kind of stuff. We got into music and entertainment. So like the Dave Matthews Band and John Mayer, and we ran these online auctions for them where they'd auction off front row tickets and the money would, you know, would go to, to good causes. And then we got into everything from public art auctions to public television auctions to see what else. Anyway, I think you get the idea. Automotive auctions, you know, for used cars. We got into all this stuff where people wanted to collect the user information and not just sell the item, but also then begin to build their brand and their and their sort of contact with customers who are interested in what they have. So that was a really cool business. Did that for, I think it was maybe 10 years or so. And then we collided with the Great Recession. And then, David, honestly, this is one of the, this was one of the most, difficult periods of my career when the Great Recession hit and discretionary income really dried up. We had to make a really hard decision about whether to continue operating the business or not. And we ultimately decided to stop. I had two girls at home, very young, under the age of two, you know, and you're, you're starting to look at yourself going, okay, am I providing for my family or am I chasing this dream? And, and it's great when those two things are in alignment, but I'll tell you, when they're in conflict, that, uh, that poses real challenges. Anyway, ultimately decided to shut the business down. But then I got into consulting. I had a consulting business and hooked up with Kettering Health. Honestly, um, two years later, I ended up being the CIO when the, the prior CIO transitioned out. And uh, if you had asked me when I'd be the CIO for Healthcare Network, <laughs> no chance. But here I am. And I'll tell you, it's a, it's a really great role. Well, it just goes to show, I mean, you, you don't have to, I mean, I've even seen some legacy retail CIOs or, or technology leaders move into healthcare and other folks that weren't classically healthcare focused. It just goes to show, like speaking to some of the things that we've mentioned before, that strategic mind, engagement with the stakeholders. I mean, I've found that when we work on projects with health systems, that oftentimes the clinical, operational, stakeholders 
they often know what they need, you know, and it's just about really bringing all those pieces together and kind of conducting the orchestra. I'm going to hire guys that are much smarter than me to, to engineer the solution itself, right? Right. It's about how do I bring all those pieces together? It's, you know, healthcare is a really, it's a really complex environment. I can't imagine a more complex industry than healthcare, to be quite honest with you. The uh, coming in from the outside, I remember some of the first observations I had. One was, if you've been swimming in the water of healthcare for a long time, you don't realize how much bureaucracy is layered into healthcare, government regulation, and uh, and legislation, which is good. I'm not arguing against that. It's just you realize that that there are. I mean, we got policies. We have we have manuals of policies that people have to be aware of and follow. And I was coming out of an internet startup company. You know, <laughs> it was like. It was like I went from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum, you know, in terms of regulation and policy. And I just remember coming in like, wow, this is just so heavy in that sense. And it's all trying to ensure safety and good outcome. And and once again, I, I don't want to turn this into a policy pro or con discussion. I think there's good intent behind it. It's just when you have to swim in those waters on a day-to-day basis. The bureaucracy that that creates is really heavy. The other observation I had is the role of the physician is really unique. I'm not sure what industry has sort of the role of the physician. And by that, I mean, we have employed physicians, yet we have physicians in the community who are independent, all who use our hospitals. In some cases, they are partners. And in some cases, they are competitors. And that hat may change like in a meeting four times back and forth. To your point about you're trying to bring stakeholders together and chart the path forward, I think that I think people in healthcare genuinely want to do the right thing for the patients. I really do. I think people, it's incredible the desire for that. But to actually achieve that, there is complexities in terms of relationships with stakeholders that, man, that can make that water muddy quick. <laughs> There's that. And then, and then in my experience, then when you weave in the, the academic, element to it and that just adds a whole nother layer the unionization of physicians the i mean it's crazy man but i will say this the industry is begging for digital transformation and innovation and i think we're starting to see it which is really good so once again back to your your sort of comments about the cio and our our discussion around that i think the cio is uniquely positioned to have a huge impact on the healthcare organization as part of and, and that's pretty exciting stuff. It really is. It's, I, think, uh, I think everyone would agree that what you experience in one industry, if it's a good experience, then you start to expect that from other industries. You know? And I mean, we all know the, the airline example, right? Like paper tickets and all that stuff is gone. You know, you're doing everything on your app. We all know Amazon. We all know these, these, these stories of this. And it's like, okay, why isn't healthcare more like that? And it's not like healthcare gets a free pass because we're not the same industry as retail or the airlines. No. Patients are consumers and they're looking at that stuff that Amazon is doing and going, I want more of that in my healthcare journey. So suddenly it's like, all right, we got to elevate the game like crazy. And then that's what we're trying to do. So I love that. I'll, I'll look forward to getting into a little bit more about that. But that's what we're seeing too, especially with the advent of COVID. You know, even the most, you know, Luddite consumers starting to 
leverage their devices more and, and need to do things online, start video conferencing when they didn't even know what that was before and things of that nature. So Andy, before we kind of hop into your role now and some more things about Kettering, I just want to ask a question about a more philosophical question. What's one of the most important things you've learned over the course of your life and what was life like before learning it and after learning it? I'll tell you, David, I think it's hard for me to answer that question without diving into my faith. Yeah, it really is. I think that uh, as I have uh, grown up and matured and evolved, I continue to, uh, to realize the importance of my spirituality. And for me, that takes the shape of my Christian faith. And when I reflect back on, you know, my 20s and early 30s, where honestly, I, I look at myself and I still view myself as pretty immature over those years, you know, you think you got things figured out and as you get older, you quickly realize you didn't have anything figured out. You know? <laughs> yep, I do. But uh, I think that sort of spiritual awareness and awakening and eventually the, the growth in my Christian beliefs moved me from being really selfish and not even being aware of how selfish I was, you know, in my younger years. To hopefully, and I say hopefully because I don't have this figured out yet by any stretch, to hopefully getting out of the way and allowing myself to serve others, help others, advance other causes, things that are larger than myself. And I think everyone is sort of on their own journey, you know, as they move through their life. And for me, the impact of my faith on ultimately my own leadership development you know, I talked earlier about integrity, you know, all those different hats that we all wear on any given day. That element of my spiritual growth is, is hopefully, and I try to be that guy that shows up the same regardless of the hat that I'm in. And I think that's been a really big deal for me. So, and I'm happy to go further into this if you want to, that's for sure. I mean, I just, it resonates with me 100% because even early on starting disruptive innovations, it's easy to get sucked into that kind of self-centered fear and fear of failure, just a thousand forms of fear. And for me, there's no, there's no spirituality there, right? I have to, I have to kind of, like you said, focus on something bigger than myself, get outside of myself. And for me, the only way that I've been able to do that is by the opposite of fear is, is faith for me. Yeah, and, and I mentioned that book earlier uh, in, in our discussion, Mastering Leadership. And uh, I think one of the, I don't mean to make this a commercial about that book, but I, I, it's really been impactful for me, coupled with my, with my Christian pursuit. But one of, the really, one of the really important thoughts in that book is as we move through our development as individuals, there's sort of, if you want to characterize it sort of as the teenage years where you're just a narcissist. I mean, it's just all about you, right? You're all you're thinking about is meet my needs. At some point, hopefully you grow out of that at least. Um, but when you start to get into being a more mature adult, you sort of move into what the book describes as a reactive uh, development stage, which is really, I'm going to let the outside world define me. I'm going to look at what the billboards say this is the way you need to be because we got a product that can get you there, you know, and that takes the form of all kinds of stuff, whether it's 
women who look at a billboard and go, I don't look like that. Suddenly I'm not as good because I'm not as beautiful as that girl up on the billboard. Or for guys, it's, wow, look at all the commercials on TV that are showing successful individuals. And if I just have that car, I got it going on, you know? And, and that is just a really not dangerous place to be. It's just a less mature place to be. It's just, I'm going to let the outside world tell me what I should be. And I'm going to react to that. The next evolution up is what's referred to as creative, which is, no, I've done the self-reflection, looked inside, and I've asked myself the hard questions about who I want to be and what my purpose is and what are my values. And I'm going to understand those and clarify those. And I'm going to live my life out of those. So as a creative leader, for example, you're not letting the outside world tell you who you are. You understand who you are and you know you're, you have blind spots and you're trying to work through some of those things that you need to improve on. But you know what you stand for and you lead out of that. And those are really different places to be. And I can't get from reactive to creative without the spiritual side of this, right? I can't and, and this, this relates directly to my role as CIO. So it's, you know, this isn't just sort of conceptual fluff in our mind. This is the game that we're all playing, whether we realize it or not. I can't be an effective CIO, father, husband, friend, board member, whatever, right? Without thinking about who am I as a person? What is my identity? And for me, that Christian faith that feeds that and helps clarify that and helps foundationally create who I am, then I can lead out of that. Then I can start to stand up in front of my teams and say, you know, we have this incredible responsibility to take care of the community that we serve. In IT, we're going to serve those people who serve. We don't necessarily deal directly with patients, but we sure, certainly deal with stakeholders like physicians and nurses. And we better be doing everything we can to make sure they can deliver the goods ultimately to the community. So it's not just this disconnect between what I believe and who I am and this thing that we're trying to do. There's a direct line of sight between all that. And that is really, really important. When we re-realigned our, our mission and, and vision, you know, 12 to 18 months ago, that was what it was all about. A, we're focused very heavily on healthcare and nonprofits, but really how do we best serve these organizations so they can make a profound impact on the community? Right. Making us a part of something much bigger than just IT and digital consulting, you know. And as the leader of your organization, it's hard to fake that. And this goes back to the whole identity piece of that. Right. People will see through if you're not authentic about, oh, well, David, does he really believe that or not? Is he just sort of standing up saying, hey, you know, we got to go help healthcare because healthcare helps people. And that's great. So let's go do it. Or is there something deeper there where they see, wow, the way David acts and leads and interacts with his teams and interacts with the public around him, community and the customers, there's something deeper there that he operates out of. There's more meaning there. And then suddenly that mission that you profess, suddenly you embody it and it, and it becomes real for everybody. And as a leader, that's, that then allows you to influence, to advance that mission. And that's, I just think that's, I know it sounds conceptual and ethereal, but I've gotten to the point where I completely buy into that thought. I can't show up at work and be different than who I am outside of work. I have to understand where my identity comes from, what values I stand on, 
or I'm going to stand up in front of my teams and they're just going to be like, this guy is just blowing hot air. I totally get that. And I think one of the significant things about, you know, your Christian faith or spirituality in general or, or whatever, whatever it takes to get an individual kind of tethered, like for me, getting to that place is a daily practice. You know, it's not just like I'm, I'm good now, like I've arrived and I'm enlightened, right? It's something that I have to, you know, pray, I have to meditate, I have to do all these things to maintain my level of spiritual fitness else, you know, I can, you know, slip back into kind of that self-serving, like fear of not getting what I think I need or losing what I have. Yeah. And it's interesting to say that I'm in a, uh, a Bible study on Thursday mornings with a group of guys who are, uh, who are really successful individuals that run very successful businesses um, or have had very successful careers. And, uh, you know, we talk about the need for solitude and, and the need to spend time in scripture, you know, and, and the need for supportive relationships in this regard. You know, it's amazing when we come together on Thursday mornings and uh, we're sort of on the one hand talking about issues that our businesses face while at the same time talking about as leaders and trying to really live our faith. How does that marry into whatever issues that we face? And it's incredible to hear really successful people open up, talk about that. And it's inspiring because you realize, man, I am not alone in this gig. And I don't know how you do it without the spiritual side. Like, I don't know how people solve some of these problems. And I think in a lot of cases, they don't. They just keep thrashing around, going through the same issue over and over again without evolving through it. But the spiritual nature of that, you know, you talk about meditation and, and prayer and, and significant relationships or supportive relationships, I think are key as well. I think service is key to that. Like you got to get out of the way at some point. You got to say, you know what, I'm just going to go do something purely to help somebody else. And then there's no sort of give back to me in that uh, transaction, if you will. I think that's all really important. You read about some of the most prolific leaders, these men and women who have achieved great success, and they were always on to that next success, that next strivers, right? And if that's the only thing that I'm concerned about, or if those are my values, you often hear about these folks and they just, they weren't ever able to experience happiness, like, because they weren't clear on their values. And it's just, it's sad. Like, I, I personally, I don't want to live that way. And once again, this isn't, to me, this conversation is not conceptual and irrelevant. It's very relevant and it has a very practical application. I mean, everyone knows about the great resignation going on. I'm absolutely convinced it may not be, there may be multiple factors and I don't claim to fully understand it, but I guarantee you one of the things near the top of the list as to why people are getting out is because they don't feel the meaning in the work that they're doing. And that relates directly to what we're talking about. As leaders, this goes back to the, one of the promises of leadership, set the right direction and create meaningful work. People are always going to want to chase the dollar and they can always go find a job somewhere else where they make more money. However, I would argue that certainly within my organization, if all people are interested in is their paycheck, then I've done a really ineffective job of creating the right culture. It's got to be more about, look, we are taking care of the community. We are helping people when they're at their most vulnerable. And if that doesn't resonate with you as an individual, then maybe this isn't the right place for you. 
But I would argue that in the midst of the Great Resignation, the most powerful adhesive that we have to my organization is the meaning of the work that we do. It really matters. It, I have to like inculcate that and embody that, and everybody does, such that we can deliver the IT solutions that we need to deliver while at the same time, we're not churning through staff. You know, people want to be here. They want to be a part of this. They know it matters. And I really think that a lot of people have just bailed on their jobs because it was purely transactional. It was just like, okay, this is all I do. You know, it's not feeding me spiritually or emotionally or from the heart. And as a result, it's like, all right, I'll just cut out of here. You know, what's the big deal? And, and I, think that's a, I think that's a huge part of the, the great resignation, if you will. That makes sense to me, 100%. I agree wholeheartedly. So I, I think this is a good segue into the future. So I want to talk a little bit about Kettering. What's your, your vision for Kettering? Sure. Let me speak to the vision for my part of the organization. The, the vision for Kettering as a whole is to uh, be the leader in transforming the healthcare experience, okay? Within my organization, it, it, it plays right into this, this conversation we're having about culture, where we've tried to be very intentional about defining our culture. If you're familiar with Patrick Lencioni's book, The Advantage, we, we've taken it, we, we, we've worked through that to define our culture. And uh, as we were going through that exercise, and, and even prior to that, we defined the vision for our organization very simply as only value. And, and by that, it's we live at a really complex intersection of healthcare and IT. In order for Kettering to be successful, my organization has to be maximizing the value it delivers out to the organization. And that is the essence of only value. But it leads to, okay, how do we start thinking about what we do, changing it such that the value proposition increases? So things like incidents and break fixes and all that stuff, how do we minimize that? How do we automate things so it's such that our highly skilled technical people are not taking care of things that could be automated and we free them up to deal with the larger, more complex issues that we need them on? You know, you start to see this cascade of thinking from this concept of only value. Um, we're very intentional about why we exist. Uh, I used this language earlier, we serve those who serve, right? We definitely deploy technology directly to our patients, but by far the majority of our technology is delivered to the stakeholders like physicians and nurses and lab techs and all of them who are doing their jobs. So we have to serve those who are serving the patient ultimately. So as we have, as we have defined that culture, right, and, and really tried to create that kind of clarity um, and lab techs and all of them who are doing their jobs. So we have to serve those who are serving the patient ultimately. As we have defined that culture and really tried to create that kind of clarity, it sets us up then to say, okay, where do we want to go from here now that we have that firm foundation? What are some of the, the key initiatives that have come out of that that you're focused on now? One thing that we did probably three years ago now was uh, stand up a, a digital guest experience team to start really maximizing value that we're delivering directly to the guests. And that team has done an incredible job over the past few years, whether it's especially with COVID hitting, suddenly telemedicine, chatbots uh, for symptom checkers, online scheduling, all of these direct to guest technologies and solutions suddenly got massively ramped up through COVID. And as a result, we deployed 
great solutions uh, to improve the guest experience. So we continue to evolve that, which is really important, obviously. If you think about patient flow through a healthcare network, it's really complicated. So someone presents at the ER, they have to make a determination, do they need to go into the hospital? How long do they stay in the hospital? When do they get discharged? Where do they go from there? This is that, that sequence, that flow, there are a zillion decisions in that. A few years ago, we created a network operation command center in which we centralized a lot of patient flow capacity in the organization. And literally, you walk into this command center and it looks like you're walking into the operations room at NASA. You got the monitors up on the wall. We understand who's in beds, what beds are open, how do we coordinate getting the rooms cleaned in the hospital. We track the helicopters, we track the ambulances, we track all the patient movement you know, across the network. We interact with external agencies such that when patients are coming in, we're coordinated. And all that is technology driven. You know, and it was, it's a really, it's, a, it's just such a, a great showcase of digital transformation in healthcare and, and the benefits thereof. We continue to look at the guests and their experience. We continue to look internally at operations and solutions like the NOC. And then there's just sort of this, I don't want to say standards, but there's, there's basic IT stuff that we have to consider going forward. So we're still running data centers. And at what point do we get out of the business of running data centers and move everything to the cloud? You know, so we're starting to explore, you know, how we can move in that direction. We look at analytics and uh, the future of healthcare as it relates to, to the move to value. And maybe just to speak to that for a second for your listeners, the, the history of healthcare is physicians and the hospitals get paid for doing more. And there was no real sort of sense, well, what are the outcomes from doing more? But we're going to pay you for doing more stuff, more tests, more procedures, more whatever, right? So the shift of value is essentially, all right, we want better outcomes. We want to understand what those outcomes are. So we want better quality. And oh, by the way, we want to either control cost or lower cost, right? Which is the value proposition. So we got huge forces in, the, uh, in our government and in the industry that, that are driving healthcare towards the move to value. And, and IT is a big part of that. And analytics is a big part of that. So we look forward and we say, okay, what are our analytic capabilities? And how do we have to advance that to create uh, solutions for our community that move us towards value? Um, and there's, there's so much to unpack there, David. It's unbelievable. Because then you start getting into, well, where do you get all the data? How do you put it together in a way where you can view the patient holistically? So providers, wherever they are in the care continuum, can make the wise choice, you know, based on the history of the patient and the insight and all of that capability is all IT driven. We're right in the middle of figuring all that out. IoT devices, proactive monitoring, you know, getting that data back. Oh my gosh, we've all deployed electronic medical records. How do we aggregate all of that information and make it meaningful? You got labs, you got pharmacy, you've got all this information that's sort of floating around out there in different organizations, different systems, how do we take all that and package it up in a way that we can really help people to have better lives, where we can take care of them better and hopefully keep them well as opposed to coming into the hospital? Totally agree. That being said, what are some of the biggest challenges your organization is facing right now? Or I, I really think the financial pressures are pretty severe right now in healthcare, even though it's a huge 
swath of our uh, our economy in the, in the states. You know, with nineteen percent of, of GDP somewhere in there, trillions of dollars, three four trillion dollar industry. It sounds like oh, it's just a wash with money, you know. But I'll tell you, it, it's there's real financial pressure, uh, at least that we're feeling. The uh, pressure on the top line, as mentioned, we're moving away from this idea that more tests, more doctor visits, more procedures, and oh, by the way, you get paid for all that is good, to no, let's start making better decisions here and, and using the resources better. And CMS, which is, you know, which runs Medicare, I mean, that's the biggest payer. They're still commercial payers, but CMS is the biggest payer. They're tightening the screws on what they're, you know, how they're paying, and what they're paying. And that puts real pressure on us as an organization. So, you know, our operating margins are like 1%, 2%, 3%, you know, I mean, they are low. So it's not like we're churning money out of the income statement and putting it on the balance sheet so that we can go spend a lot of capital on IT investments. So we've got to be really smart about how we operate, how we drive dollars to the bottom line, and then ultimately, what do we decide in terms of where to apply capital. What are some of the best practices you and your team follow? I'm a big fan of Baldridge. And uh, right now, we are in the midst of applying for the Baldridge Award for my, my piece of the organization. And um, I really subscribe to what the Baldridge framework presents as far as how to think about your organization. You know, you, you look across essentially seven categories in the Baldrige framework, everything from, from leadership to customers to strategy, you know, to how do you measure, what metrics do you have in place to understand how you're performing, to, to the workforce, to operations, ultimately to results. And how do you think about each one of those domains? And, and how do you put in place practices and processes within each one of those such that you are truly an, an excellent organization? And, uh, and we've been on this journey uh, specifically for Baldrige only for about a, a couple of years. But prior to that, for a number of years, we were doing things that lent themselves to what ultimately we're doing with Baldrige, how we thought about our customers, how we do strategic planning and deployment, you know, all those things that are contained within Baldrige. We were maturing as the organization, but to formalize it under the Baldrige framework, has been an incredible exercise. And uh, you really re- start to understand um, how to think about the organization the right way and how to run it to be a truly excellent organization. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. So when you say best practices, anytime I hear that now, I go right into, yep, that's what we're trying to clarify and create through this Baldrige exercise. And uh, it has been incredibly challenging, David, but incredibly enlightening. To have to sit there and say, very intentionally document, and think through, yes, this is how we do this. And then you start to go, oh, man, do we have a lot of work to do in that area? <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, I, lo- I love frameworks like that. I mean, that leadership task, that tactic that you mentioned before, mastering leadership. Yeah, I, th- I, I think having that to fall back on, especially when things get complicated, right? And being able to know what that next step is. I mean, it's huge. And I'm looking forward to looking into the, the Baldrige framework now. Once again, I mean, it, it relates to this idea of only value. We can't deliver the most value in support of our mission without being an excellently run organization. So as the CIO, 
it's not enough for me just to be using cool words like digital transformation, disruptive innovation. I view a key part of my job is architecting the organization such that we can actually do that. It's not, it's, it's not enough to say, hey, we got great technical people and, and we got you know, really smart people and, and we're doing all this cool stuff. It's got to be, how am I setting the organization up so that we can do that whether I'm here or not, whether another leader is here or not, whether things change in the external environment that we have to react to or not. It's, it's, we got to architect the organization the right way. And that's, in my mind, is what Baldrige does. So we have all the cool what stuff that we do, digital innovation and move to the cloud and digital guest experience and all that stuff. But the how behind it, how are we going to get all that done and make sure we can repeat it over time and be great at it? That's what we're talking about now at Baldrige. I relate to that. We've, we've been striving towards that level of sustainability where if I, if I were to fall off the face of the earth, like how does the organization still run? You know, very cool. Um, all right. So a couple last questions. Where do you see the, the healthcare industry going in the future? We kind of touched on this before, but any, any thoughts on some of the biggest changes as time passes or, or any thoughts surrounding that? I mean, I guess uh, I buy into the notion of this move to value. I, I mean, I think it makes sense. You know, there's a reason why every time we have a political election, especially, you know, at the presidential level, healthcare is such a big part of the discussion. It's just the increase in cost is unsustainable for us. We have to look at this industry and change how we're practicing healthcare to the benefit of the patient. I accept the fact that, you know, what our government is trying to do, what CMS is trying to do, heck, what we're trying to do is a network makes sense. It's what's best for the patient. And that is, wouldn't you be much happier if you knew that the doctor you were working with had great outcomes and we could prove that and show that to you? And you would know going in that he's operating with best practices and the costs are going to be as efficient as they can be. I mean, I think that makes sense. So I think this evolution of healthcare in that regard, I think it's just, we keep moving down this path. At some point, I don't know, five, 10 years from now, I think that the industry, I hope anyways, is in a position where we have achieved the majority of the industry operating out of this move to value. It may not be 100% there, but I hope that the majority of the networks and the patient visits and the uh, delivery of healthcare occurs under this framework of uh, value so that the patients are getting as good a care as they can get and the costs are controlled and, and hopefully the, the experience across the board is really strong. And I, I, think, I think we're going to get there. It's just a big industry and it, it doesn't turn on a dime by any stretch. Lots to unpack, but... I agree. And I, I see that happening. It's kind of, I feel like with everything that's gone on, it's really pressed fast forward on getting there. So that's been for the better. In wrapping up, we'd like to ask our guests, uh, if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? You know, I think I can be pretty hard on myself. I think that I had a tendency when I was younger, this goes back to our, the spiritual side of our discussion, to be very dualistic in my thinking. So there was a lot of yes, no, right, wrong, black, white kind of thinking. And, and what lends itself really well to that is, is self-judgment and, and the sort of view of failure, if you will, you know, where you can really be hard on yourself because you're coming at it from a perspective, which is, well, this is my definition of success. And because I didn't achieve my definition of success, therefore I fail. 
or, and that applies to, I didn't get the grade I wanted in school. I didn't achieve the thing I wanted with my business. I didn't do whatever, you know? And I think what I've, what I've grown into, I would like, well, I shouldn't say I've arrived by any stretch, but what I'm trying to evolve into is a place where it's more contemplative in my thinking, where it's, that wasn't a failure. That was an incredible learning experience. And if you catch it as a failure, you're going to miss the benefit out of it. You went through the lens of just, that's okay. That You did the best you could with what you had. Now learn from it and, and grow through that and evolve through that as opposed to let that thing define me or define you. Um, and then you're stuck because you're viewing it through sort of a dualistic lens. So if I could go back and tell myself something, it would be take this spiritual thing really seriously because it's going to lead to really sort of the renewing of the mind, if you will, in a lot of ways. And I think that's a really powerful thought. I agree. That perspective is, is so huge. You know, me- measuring myself, not by the outcome, but by the effort I put in, the rigor, the feeling, all of that. Not to belabor it, it just it goes back to our identities, right? It goes back to, are you letting the world define who you are or are you trying to figure out who you are and then operating out of that? I think as younger people, we all have a tendency to see, to let the world define who we are. And that's okay. You know, you have to mature through that. But don't get so caught up in that that you stop evolving into ultimately figuring out, this is who I really am and this is what's really important. I think that dualistic thinking very much applies to the reactive leader, to that sort of less mature adult. You know, and I think we're all trying to work our way beyond that. 100%. Andy. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We really appreciate having you on. Thanks, David. This was great. I'll do it anytime. So just let me know. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.